when I joined IDC, what they would do is, uh, this is back when dinosaurs walked the earth 35 years ago, we would basically get a spreadsheet and an HP calculator and forecast the market for whatever. And we would all talk to each other and there would be sort of this institutional learning. So we had the same debate that you're talking about, which is, you know, the analysts, you know, oh my God, the computer is going to take over my job. And I think that people somehow forget that it's not as if the machine is simply going to take over and start, you know, making these decisions completely on their own. I think we can agree that technology has been indispensable as we work remotely during the pandemic. Then there's the other side of it. We are working more hours, we feel pressured to be accessible all the time, and we blur boundaries between our professional and private lives, which can lead to burnout. We've also seen jobs displaced by technology. I wanted to learn more about the future of work and the role of technology. So I reached out to someone who knows a thing or two about that. Crawford Delpreet is the president of IDC and a leading expert in the IT industry. Oh, thank you so much for having me. You know, thanks in large part to technology, we've been able to work even during a pandemic for some time now. I'm, I'm sure you're hearing from corporate leaders, analysts, and your own employees about how this is changing the way we work. What's everyone saying? Yeah, so our company is dedicated to understanding sort of the way that technology is being used by society in business and in life. And we are operating in 52 countries around the world. We have over 1,100 analysts that are studying the impact of tech. And so around the world, this has just been an extraordinary time, as we all consistently talk about. Over the course of a weekend, the world was sort of sent home for this world's longest snow day if you will, where basically the, <laughs> the entire world has been has been working remotely or or from a safe place. And I think that it was probably summed up best by Satya Nadella, who's the CEO of Microsoft, when he said, you know, the world has seen two years of transformation and move in the last two months, which he said famously last May. And I think that that really sums up what we're seeing at IDC. Now at IDC, we work with tech suppliers. And we also work with customers that are consuming tech to help them understand this impact of technology on the world and to analyze its impact. And so what we're seeing is that people, ironically, have accelerated their plans to digitally transform. They have accelerated their plans to invest in technology so that people can be productive. And we've seen from a technology spending standpoint, this downturn has been different than any other downturn. So I have been with this company for an unbelievable amount of time. I, I was with this company 33 years ago, and I've seen this company grow and been a part of its of its growth for all these years. And in every other downturn, whether it be the dot-com bust, whether it be the financial crisis of 2008, 2009, we saw that GDP dropped and tech spending dropped even more. In this downturn, we've seen that GDP last year will be down, give or take, about 3 to 4%. Tech spending will be positive. It'll be up about 2%. And that's because for the first time, people are now investing in technology to accelerate their business and to make people connected. And there are just very stark examples of that. You send everyone home, they need a PC. They need a PC with a better webcam. They need connectivity. They need better broadband. They need to be able to access all the same applications, which means you're going to need the cloud. So, you know, we're seeing just a lean in 
toward tech in a way that we've never seen before in any other downturn. And I think that it is building a level of digital resiliency in companies that you know, they never really thought possible in the past. And I think that is a tremendous change from past downturns. That is a really good insight about technical resiliency and what we're building, not just for now, but for the future. Were you at all surprised at how the internet was able to take this kind of load when everybody was on Zoom? No, not at all. And we work with pretty much all the major carriers around the world. And, you know, if you think about the network as a living thing, and I don't want to get too technical on it, but what we saw was that the core of the network was where so much of the investment had been made for so, so many years. And that's Amazon, that's Google Cloud, that's Microsoft Azure, that's Oracle Cloud. You know, they've been building out these large data centers. When we we sent the world home, we basically had to think about investing in the network in the same way, but we had to invest in a different spot. We had to now invest at what we call the edge of the network. We had to upgrade and figure out ways to increase the capacity of the network at the edge of the network so that we could be productive at home. And, and, and it wasn't perfect, right? People who had two or three kids that were doing distance learning, they were playing games, they were watching Netflix all day long. You know, those people had to upgrade their service and it's expensive and those are real challenges. But you're right, the network didn't break. It is a living thing and we just invested in it in a different way. And we believe that as we continue to create more and more data beyond sending people home, we believe that over half of tech infrastructure Structure spending by 2023 will be going to the edge of the network. And the reason for that is to decrease the amount of time it takes to get a decision out to the person who's actually using the data. So we have to move the compute out to the edge of the network. So there will be a lot of internet of things then? Oh, absolutely. So, you know, the internet of things and ultimately the proliferation of connectivity technologies like Wi-Fi 6 and then ultimately 5G as that gets rolled out. These are all examples of connectivity technologies that will allow the point of decision to be closer and closer and closer to the point of where the user is actually making that decision. And by the way, the user isn't always a person, right? The user is, is oftentimes a machine. And I think the best example of needing to have a very, very significant amount of compute at the edge, at the point of decision, is a driverless vehicle. Because that driverless vehicle is moving down the street, and it needs to be able to process information locally. You know, if that car is driving down the street and it sees a person walking, you know, it has to be able to determine very quickly, is that is that another car? Is that a person? Is that a fire hydrant? Is that a baby carriage? And it has to make a decision instantaneously. It doesn't have enough time to go back through the network because that decision has to be made in real time. So two things are super powerful here. One is the ability of the cloud, and the second is the ability to process data locally. So the interesting thing is that for a car to learn that ability, it has to have access to the cloud. And the beautiful thing about the cloud and about all these connected devices is when you have one car, it learns very slowly. When you have a million driverless cars all connected to the cloud, they all learn together. And so this accelerated learning through the cloud, through connectivity, being able to process that data locally is kind of what we're going to see in the future, which is why things are going to get very, very interesting, you know, very, very quickly. All 
different technologies coming together in different ways. That's fascinating. I am truly excited about what the, the future holds. Oh, it's going to be a wonderful world. But anytime you have a new technology like this, there are always winners and losers. What happens to the future of work? Yeah, it's a really complicated question. And I don't mean to pick on media and I don't mean to pick on movies and, and sci-fi because they've done a fantastic job by and large of predicting things that we're going to see in the future. I'm still waiting for my lightsaber that will come <laughs> you know, at some point. But unfortunately, what's happened with a lot of people People is that they get really concerned about the future of work and AI because of what they see. And they basically assume that AI is coming to, you know, kind of take your job. And we're going to have robots and it's all fun and games until the robot comes and takes your job and moves into your house and takes over everything and ultimately kills you. And these are the real concerns that people have. And what we see is that if you think about an individual job, a job is not a single entity. A job is made up of in some cases, dozens, and in some cases of hundreds of tasks. And those tasks are done on an hourly basis, on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, on a yearly basis. And those tasks are extremely varied. And humans are super qualified and they're just really, really good at being able to determine, is that a pen or is that a pencil or is that a knife? And in order to train a computer to be able to do that is a complicated process of learning. Just picking up a pencil is an inconsequential task that people have every single day and being able to pick it up and comprehend whether it's sharp and be able to use it is things that, you know, that's the base level we don't even think about. Now, there are times when a job and a single task are 100% correlated. That's a horrible place to be. That would be an example of somebody working in the typing pool in the 1960s, where you're just basically typing documents all day. Those are really vulnerable jobs. But the truth is that if you think about the jobs being broken up into tasks, what we need to think about is how do we train a AI machine to take on the most mundane tasks and to be able to free us up in order to be trained on new tasks, on more complicated tasks, on tasks that frankly pay more than the tasks that we're doing today. And those tasks will come together in different ways and become new kinds of jobs and new kinds of roles. So I can make an argument that there are some vulnerable you know, roles. Being a long haul truck driver is gonna change dramatically as a job because the first phase of that is gonna be that the trucker is gonna be there to take the goods off the truck and to put the goods back on the truck and to basically be there for when the truck gets off the freeway. Because on the freeway, you can pretty much use driverless, but it's when you get off that you get into all those variables that are much harder to program for. You can also make the case that the role associated with being a UPS driver, for example, there'll be a day in the not too distant future where the UPS driver does not drive the truck, but he or she will be in the back of the truck, keeping the truck organized, making sure that they can deal with whatever they're dealing with at their next stop, which could be a pet. It could be multiple pets. It could be a slippery walkway full of ice. So those jobs are going to evolve. The challenge that we have is not only to try to train people to do more complicated tasks, but it's that People have a super hard time visualizing how new jobs will form and will be created in the future. And so there's a professor at MIT, a guy by the name of David Otter, who has a great anecdote about this, which I'll hopefully do justice to. But he looks at this and says, if you go back 120 years in the United States, something like over 70% of our GDP was tied to agriculture. Mm -hmm. And if you could go back in time, 120 years, and talk to that farmer and say to that farmer, I will tell you that in 120 years, 
Less than 5% of all of our jobs will be tied to agriculture in the United States. Food will be plentiful and there will be no famine. That farmer would say, oh my God, what are people going to do, right? What are they possibly going to do? And I'll guarantee you that if you said to that farmer, well, it's no problem. They're going to be platform as a service developers, iOS developers, and they're going to be working in the cloud. That farmer would look at you like you were speaking Greek, right? right? And that's the problem is that people can't visualize what these jobs are going to be in the future. They can only visualize what they're going to lose because that's what they're doing every day. And so I would say- Focus on those skills that are made up of multiple tasks, jobs that are that are made up of the more tasks, the better, and the more varied tasks, the better, because those are the things that are the hardest to automate. I really like your example about agriculture, and nobody could have predicted what life would be 100 years right. out. But how are companies thinking about the short term? How are they thinking about sorting out jobs that AI can replace and jobs that really need the rich human input. Again, this is where it gets very difficult because it gets real very, very quickly. And what the most progressive and smartest companies are thinking about doing is they're making a commitment to training, evolving their workforce and teaching their workforce newer and newer skills as they automate the dangerous roles or the roles where it's just mundane work that can be automated. And we know this is a 25-year and 50-year kind of a problem. And to your point, technology is moving very, very quickly. It's moving much faster than we can effectively train people. So you really have to go into individual departments, individual roles, and help people, but really implore them to learn new skills and to focus on those new skills and focus on evolving those skills so that they can grow as individuals and as employees. And I spent a lot of time in the world of technology and in the world of data centers and how people are actually programming and working. And, you know, our data says this over and over and over. People who are working within a data center, for example, they don't want to be monitoring the system to find out when the hard drive fails or when a motherboard fails or when something really mundane fails. They want to be learning how to code. They want to be learning how to code on the newest tools and the most sophisticated tools. They want to be working with more advanced software. But a lot of times, I think companies fail in putting that technology in, in giving people the opportunity to learn those platforms so that people can visualize how they learn those platforms. Some of it is on the employer and some of it's on the employee. I mean, this notion of lifelong learning, this notion of I want to be curious for my entire career, I'm always thinking about how I'm going to expand. I think that's come into the public consciousness in the last 20 years, but it's something that is still not consistently reinforced by individuals. And people really need to think about how can I build a roadmap for myself and evolve? Because I promise you, wishing it away or being anti-progress is a recipe for disaster from a career standpoint. You just can't do it. You can't bet against this progress, which means that you're in a race to evolve yourself and to be a lifelong learner and to always be making yourself a little bit more relevant within your chosen field. And I feel like we do that in some of the professional areas like physicians and lawyers and ask them to get recertified, but we don't do it enough in terms of all the skills that are out there. You make excellent points about individual responsibility. I'm totally with you on that. But organizations are not just about individuals, it's about the collective. And my concern is as we continue to work from home and how do we build the sense of community? 
And how do we engineer these serendipitous interactions at the water cooler all of a sudden when creativity sparks from uh, those kinds of interactions? I made a commitment early on in this pandemic, I mean, week number one, that we would be connected as an organization and we would have the tools, get people the tools to be connected. And we do that by some obvious ways and some not so obvious ways. Obviously, tools like Zoom, tools like Teams, those are effective. But it's really about the human connection. And just to put you know a finer point on what we're doing at IDC, I write a note to the entire company, all 2,000 employees, every single Friday evening. And I do that and thinking about the person who's living in Russia or the person who's living in Slovakia, who's living alone, who's you know worried about their family. And I get messages back every week from people all over the world, basically thanking me for keeping them connected and so that they know that they're part of a larger collective. But in an ironic way, I think that companies are more connected now than they were before the pandemic because we're actually able to see each other and we're not on planes all the time. The problem, in my opinion, is that what we're not thinking enough about is that this is the easy part. When we're all on Zoom or we're all on Teams or we're all on whatever collaboration platform, the hard part is when 30% of us are back in the office right. or 40% of us are back in the office and the rest of us are remote. That's when... And I had a heartbreaking conversation with a longtime employee of our company who said to me, Crawford, this is the first time during this pandemic I feel like I'm on an equal footing. This is an employee who works remotely. He's in a very senior role. He's actually based in the, in the Midwest. And he said, it's the first time in my career I feel like I'm on equal footing with everybody else in the organization. I don't miss the joke at the beginning of the meeting. There is no chit chat that I'm missing. You know, we're all connected. And I think so much about how can we create an inclusive environment, not in the way we think about diversity and inclusion, that's super important too, but how can we create just simply an inclusive environment when some of us are back in the office and some of us are not back in the office? I've noticed this too in our meetings. If you have a board meeting, for example, and you have alumni from all across the country, it's much easier for them to come in on Zoom. We have near-perfect attendance, which is remarkable. So this idea of inclusiveness through technology, I think that is something to be said about that. I think you're right. And so I'm thinking about, okay, when we're back in the office, I'm thinking a lot about some very strong recommendations to people, which, you know, things like if you're having a meeting with less than five people, or maybe it's less than 10, I'm making the number up, I'd like you to do it at your workspace on Zoom, even if you're in the office. And what that will do, at least for the first six months, because that will level the playing field. And that won't send a message that, oh, you better be in the office if you want to be included in conversations. And I think those little kinds of things are, are very, very important to maintaining a culture of inclusivity. Now, of course, if you have a bigger meeting and you, you need people to come in for that and you all need to be together, that's a different story and those things can be planned for. But I think the occasional interaction action is actually and ironically better done this way for a while so that we can all be part of the conversation. Now, just to put some statistics around the future of work, before the pandemic hit, we estimated about 15, 14% of white collar workers were working from home. Now, obviously that shot up to 50, 60% during the pandemic. And post-vaccine, our best data suggests that number is still under 30. So again, the difference between those numbers is uh, material. When you think about all the people around the world, it represents tens of millions of people that'll be working from home. 
But the reality of it is when you ask the question of, well, what percent of people will be working hybrid? Though? Then your number gets up into the 40 and 50% range where people are looking for a new level of flexibility that they'll be seeing as a result of this technology. And I believe that is exactly what's going to happen. People are going to be more connected and they're also going to have a little bit more flexibility in their lives. And I think we'll invent some new services that came out of the pandemic that will allow them to have more flexibility. So what happens to productivity when working from home? Do you have any hard evidence on whether it's gone up, stayed the same, or gone down? Well, I can tell you, we haven't been able to study it definitively yet, but from our organization standpoint, productivity has skyrocketed. Productivity has never been higher. And the answer for that is that you reduce the travel. And that travel is like all caps, um, and I'm talking about every aspect of travel. It's the commute time travel. It's the travel to the meeting with the customer that if we don't send our most senior people, we're going to lose this deal. And now all that can be done. I look at a day like today. I started today with conversations in Prague. I spent the day speaking all over the Western Hemisphere. And I'll end today with conversations in Asia. And I never left this home office that I have. And, you know, we're connected at IDC as an organization in ways that we just never were before. And I think that when we start studying this, we're going to see this is a common thread for companies. They've developed a level of productivity. And what I'm thinking a lot about is how we maintain this level of productivity and efficiency in a world where we have to start traveling again. And we need to start traveling again for obvious reasons. Absolutely. There is one other aspect to all of this, which is the lighter side to technology and working from home. You've likely seen this video, the cat video, of, <laughs> right? Where yeah. it's a lawyer, you know, he's trying to argue a case with the judge. I'm not a cat. Mr. Ponton, I believe you have a filter turned on in the video settings. Uh, you might want to uh, uh, take, take We're a trying look. to, we're tr can you hear me, judge? I can hear you. I think it's a filter. It, in the it is, and I don't know how to remove it. I've got my assistant here. She's trying to, but uh, I'm prepared to go forward with it. That's, I'm here live. That's not, I'm not a cat. So that's fun. But there is some potential danger, is there not? The invasion of privacy and working from home. How do you separate home life from work life? Yeah, it is difficult. And, you know, people talk a lot about the fatigue associated with being on video all day long. And I would argue that that's only a part of it. It's also the fatigue of not knowing when to turn off. You know, that door is always there and I can come through that door and I can just start to work at any time. You know, if I can't sleep at night, I can come in. And I think that requires a level of self-discipline to not create a level of mental fatigue that is incredibly dangerous. But it's funny, we as a company, I worried a lot about this and we sent out a note within the first three weeks of being home for the pandemic. It was an agreement that I wanted every employee to read and, and tacitly agree to. And in that agreement, it said things like, don't ever lose sight of the fact that we are inviting each other into our homes. And our homes are all gonna look different. And in some cases, it's the room I slept in. And in some cases, it's the room that I eat in. You know, it's my kitchen or it's whatever. So don't ever lose sight of that. And also, you know, people who are giving care to another member of their family, whether it be elderly, whether it be a young child, whether it be a partner, except in this agreement I sent out, except that there will be times when people simply cannot be on video. 
And please do not ask them to turn that video on. There just will be times when people won't be able to do that. And I got a lot of positive feedback on that because people felt like it gave them an ability to not have to explain. And we also did things that every company I think has done, which is, you know, we did, we built a bunch of custom backgrounds for Zoom so people could put those things up. But like I said, there's a fatigue associated with the unrelenting meetings, but then there's also this idea that I'm inviting you in my home. And a lot of people aren't okay with that. That's very kind. Indeed, we are entitled to our privacy when we are working from our homes. How do we create more humane technologies that operate effectively both the social and technical systems? I think that what is interesting is that, you know, we'll be able to collect a lot of data. We'll be able to collect a lot of different scenarios. But at the end of the day, you've got a person who has to program that computer to be able to make that decision. And I think that's what people lose sight of is with AI, whether you want to talk about bias, whatever you want to talk about, it's always a person. It is a person who told the computer how to make these decisions and how to evolve that AI engine. And I think that people somehow forget that it's not as if the machine is simply going to take over and start making these decisions completely. That's terrific. But the subjective interpretation of data, for example, your company generates a lot of data and reports. There is something to be said about machine learning and how these algorithms pick up insights. Let me put you on the spot. If you knew that an insight came from a machine learning algorithm that is processed a lot of data, and you compare that with a human, someone who has a lot of expertise, who you know has been in the domain for a long time, which interpretation would you place more confidence in? Yeah, it's a great question. And I get this question a lot. So we use at IDC, we use a number of mathematical models to do forecasting. And I made a decision early on when we started investing in these mathematical models that I did not want these mathematical models for forecasting to replace the analysts. So we had the same debate that you're talking about, which is, you know, the analysts, you know, oh my God, the computer is going to take over my job. What I do is forecasting. And the, and the methodology and what I've done is I basically have come down on the side of, I trust you as individuals. I want the people to have the final call. And that has worked out. And computer models have gotten it wrong. However, back to my example of the mundane versus the more sophisticated. When I joined IDC, what they would do is, uh, this is back when dinosaurs walked the earth 35 years ago, but we would basically get a spreadsheet and an HP calculator. And they would say, okay, forecast the market for whatever. And we would all talk to each other and there would be sort of this institutional learning and we would kind of figure out how to forecast and how to develop forecasts and future forecasts. When we started investing in these models many, many years ago, I did it so we didn't have that situation. What I want is I want the computer to come up with a forecast that adds up and that makes sense and it has logic that's explainable. And then I want to put that in front of the analyst and say, tell me what is wrong. Hmm. Tell me what is wrong with this. And I'll give you a very tangible example. We forecast the market for smartphones, right? We forecast the market for personal computers. We do tablets, but you know, pretty straightforward technology, right? You can put a forecast, but, but then you start saying, okay, fine. It's easy to forecast the market for PCs before a pandemic when things started going up. The market grows at some single digit percent or it shrinks at some single digit percent every year, but it's 300 million units and you have to figure out the, the sensitivities. But then you start cutting it. And let's get down now to a country like Italy or a country like Israel, okay? And then you say, okay, mathematically, tell me how big Israel should be or tell me how big Italy should be. And you put that in front of the analyst and they'll say, hmm, okay, well, guess what? This is totally wrong. Why? Well, the computer doesn't know that the three main school districts in Israel 
all decided to put tenders out for Chromebooks. And that's going to represent 300,000 Chromebooks over the course of this year. So we have to figure out how to add that increment in. And the computer never would know that. It just wouldn't be able to figure it out. But the computer can come up with a very logical, strong price point forecast and strong. So it's that ability to free the analysts up from making sure that all the rows and the columns add up making sure all the price assumptions are correct. And I can go scrape all that data off the web, but tell me now what's really happening on the ground. I wanna free you up to understand what's really happening in the market. That's the value of being an analyst. And then of course, understanding the domain and all the stuff that comes with it. That's exactly how we are using that. So what I do is I trust the people to understand the market and I want them making that decision. I think that's an excellent way to look at it. Use the technology and trust the people. Crawford, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And I hope that we can get an opportunity to see each other in person sometime soon safely. Great. Looking forward to it, Crawford. Thank you. Life Meet Tech is presented by WKAR in association with the College of Communication Arts and Sciences at Michigan State University. Executive producer, Melanie Paul. Audio engineer, Drew Hill. And hosted by me, Prabhu David. Special thanks to my guest, Crawford Delpreet. Please subscribe wherever you're listening right now so you don't miss an episode. And I'll see you next time on Life Meet Tech.